First, as we begin, I was just thinking of you this morning, and what I want to say is that I love you. I love being your pastor. I love that you're here. It is a privilege to serve this congregation, and I'm just grateful for the good things that the Lord is doing in the life of our church, and I just want you to know that I'm happy that you're here this morning. Second, I want to say that once again, Dan has proven right. He tells me that the sermon card is often a suggestion. It's just a guide, but it's not really something that I'm abiding by. And here we are like two weeks in and I'm already off. So what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to preach this text today, but because of the way that I've structured it, I'm going to preach this text again probably the next time we're here because I think that there's a lot here. And then I can prove Dan wrong. We'll be back on track with the sermon card. So if you do not know that we have sermon cards, we have a guide. They should be through that tunnel to the right, little display area, just texts that will be preached most likely when I'm here of what we're going to be working through as we study the book of James. Today, we're going to turn our attention to James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. Last time we saw how verse 12 tied in a little bit more with verses 2 through 11. If you're a guest with us and you don't have a Bible, you should be able to look underneath the seat in front of you or near you. should be a Bible there. You should be able to find the book of James somewhere around page 1011. The book of James is a small letter written by Jesus' brother. We're going to begin reading in a moment in James chapter 1, verse 1. And part of the reason why we're going to read through the chapter again is that we observed last week that what we often think are many disconnected sections in James chapter 1 are actually a coherent treatment of the theme of temptation that actually introduce in brief all of the themes or many of the themes that we're going to see throughout the entirety of this letter. And last week, we saw that James is actually teaching us something about fortitude and temptation and how that brings about completeness or wholeness or what we translate as perfection. But even this week, I was reminded when speaking with somebody here that perfection for James is not a perfect moral standard. What James is referring to is a completeness or an integrity in the way that we live our lives. That the person that we are behind the scenes is the person that we are in public, that there is a perfection or an integrity in the way that we live in all areas of our life. That's a a whole person. The double-minded person is somebody who comes in and sings praises during corporate worship, and then they leave and they do many of the things that James is underscoring and highlighting for us in the letter, and they don't see the disconnect between the way that they're living their life that they're able to read the confession of faith that we confessed earlier in the service and then go and sin against others or sin against God and see no problem in the way that they're living their life. And they're able to say, I'm a Christian because I say I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because I, I go to church. I'm a Christian because I was baptized. I'm a Christian because I'm on the membership role. So it doesn't matter how I'm living my life. The whole point of the book of James is that that person is not perfect. They're not whole. They lack integrity, and they might not be who they think that they are. So verses 2 through 12 help us see what James is highlighting there for integrity. And now in verses 13 through 18, he calls us to not simply walk in the way of wisdom, but he wants us to walk in the way of knowledge. Knowledge about ourselves as he deals with sin, and knowledge about the work of God as he teaches us about the good gift that comes down from the Father. He wants us to have a knowledge about our old nature if we are in Christ, a nature that we've put off, buried with Christ in baptism, and the new nature of our new life if we have been 
raised to walk in the newness of life. But what we'll see in James, just like we will see if we read other parts of the New Testament, especially the Sermon on the Mount. So here, again, is the reminder. If you're not reading the Sermon on the Mount while we're studying the book of James, then you're reading the book of James wrong. You need to be reading the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' brother is referring constantly back to Jesus' teaching here. And he wants us to see that this way of wisdom, this way of knowledge is not easy that we are going to constantly find ourselves pressed from both sides. At one and the same time, our old nature is luring about, and his desires are calling to us. It's trying to knock us off the path, and it's trying to pull us towards sin and death, while at the exact same time, we are being told in the Scripture to live according to a new nature, that we are to be different people because of the new nature. And this new nature is given to us in new birth that results in new life, that results and manifests itself in a new type of holiness. There's this battle that exists within us where we, at the one and the same time, profess to love God and desire to do these things. James is calling us to be a perfect person, a whole person. Somebody who is not following two masters, as Jesus would say, Somebody who's single-minded, single-focused in their pursuit. So we're going to begin reading James chapter 1, verse 1, as we turn our attention to verses 13 through 18 today. James writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. 
Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your help now to hear your word, to understand your word. Father, I need your help to preach your word. I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight and that they would be useful for your people. Father, we pray now that you would do what only you can do, that you would allow the words of a man to be useful to your people in the preaching of your gospel so that we might be led to deeper repentance and deeper faith if we are Christians or first-time repentance and first-time faith if we are not. And God, we ask that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Oliver was an orphan boy born outside of London who went through many hard trials in his young life. A nine-year-old resident in the parish workhouse where the boys were issued three meals of thin gruel a day with an onion once a week and half a roll on Sundays, he was overcome with hunger as he and his companions suffered the tortures of slow starvation. So after a council was held and lots were cast, Oliver was selected as the one to walk up to the master after supper one evening and ask for more. The evening arrived. The boys all took their places. The master in his cook's uniform was stationed near the copper with his assistants ranged behind him. The gruel was served out as one long grace was said over the short commons. The gruel disappeared because the boys had exceedingly strong appetites, and then the boys began to whisper to one another and winked at Oliver. His neighbors then nudged him. Child as he was, desperate with hunger, and reckless with misery, he rose from the table and advancing to the master, basin and spoon in his hand, said, somewhat alarmed by his own temerity, please, sir, I want some more. Astonished and so overcome with shock by the request of Oliver Twist, Mr. Bumble said to the board that they should punish him for the audacity to even think that in a system of such begrudging exactitude that someone could have the nerve to consider that more could be asked for, much less given. But that is exactly what is given in James chapter 1. 
the Father of lights, from whom their every good and perfect gift come, gives more. He gives more than just wisdom. He gives knowledge. He gives more than just knowledge. He gives new birth and that of his own will. Even when we lacked the wisdom to navigate life's trials and the knowledge to resist temptations, incitements. If we are those who love him, James says, he gives more than just steadfastness under trial. He gives the crown of life. And in so doing, he teaches us that he does not send temptations, but is generous and gives what he demands by means of his life-giving word. He does not send temptations, but is generous and gives what he demands by means of his life-giving word. Notice first, uncontrollable desire. Look with me in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. On the heels of verse 12, James switches direction as he transitions from a pronouncement from a blessing on the one who remains steadfast under trial to the accusation that God is the source of our temptation. Because James knows that when a person encounters trials of various kinds, that that person is very often tempted to react in a sinful way that accuses God. I would be patient if you, God, would have given me children that are quiet. I would be content if God would not have put me in such a difficult marriage. I may finally have something to thank God for if he would finally give me the relationship that I want. It wasn't me, Lord. It was the woman that you gave me. Have you ever accused God for your sin? Have you ever blamed God for your rebellion in your life? The Apostle James sees you. And he makes it very clear that the pull towards sin is not from God. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted. What James is doing here is actually the work of a very good preacher. The word for tempted is the same word for trial that we have seen already in the first 12 verses. But now he changes it because the word has a range of meaning. He wants us to see that this trial will lead to this temptation in your life. You're going to think that because this trial is in your life, that it's God's fault for the way that you're acting. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Every trial, James tells us, is also a temptation, a temptation that actually tests those, verse 12, who love God when they consider lashing out against God. If you loved me, God, my life would not be this way. You're the one who put me here. You're sovereign You rule over all things. You make all decisions. Who can resist your will? And since no one can resist your will, it's not my fault for the way that I'm acting. James knows that it is a very short step from God ordains my circumstances to God is to blame for my circumstances. So James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Friends, I wonder if that describes you here today. God ordains my circumstances. And now God is to blame for my circumstances because I don't like my circumstances. 
God is sovereign in all matters. James is clear on that, just like every New Testament writer, just like every Old Testament writer. And he appoints refining trials for his people, is what James teaches us. But God tests, not tempts, so no one can ever say he or she is being tempted by God. Why? Verse 13, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God never works that way. So be very clear in case the sentence was unclear. God never works that way. Why? Because God cannot be tempted with evil. He is totally sinless. And as a sinless being, he is incapable of inciting other people to sin because there is no sin found in God. He is infinitely holy. He is pure. He is light. He is always right. He always does good. He never errs. So he will never incite anyone to sin. He ordains all things and you are responsible for your actions. Nothing happens outside of his providence and you are culpable for everything that you have ever done, just like I am culpable for everything that I have ever done. He is totally sinless. So instead of blaming God for the enticement to sin, James says that sinful human beings need to look no further than their own deceptive hearts, verse 14. But each person, every single person, Everyone on planet Earth, man or woman, young or old, rich or poor, it does not matter. Every single, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire to react, the desire to sin, the desire to do exactly what you have done at any given moment when you have done it. The origin of temptation, James tells us, is not from God, it is our own desire once again echoing his brother's teaching, as Jesus said. Mark chapter 7, verse 18. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus does exactly what we know uh, to be true. Jesus tells us that it's not the things that you touch, it's not the people you associate with, it's not the things that you eat, it's not even the places that you go, it's you. It's not the external circumstance. It's not the other person. It's not the boss that you have. It's not the friend down the street or your neighbor. The problem is you. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Or we say it like this. It wouldn't be hard for me if people didn't dress like that in town. That's not the problem. And maybe they shouldn't. The problem is you. It's not them. It's you desire something wicked. And maybe they are doing something wicked but we want to blame somebody so that we're not in trouble. And Jesus cuts right to the bottom of that, just like James, and says, no, 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 no. It's not everybody else around you. It's you that are the problem. The magnetism 
for James, of unchecked desires, is uncontrollable as our desires begin to trap us. And notice how he describes it. They lure us by these tantalizing enticements. They seem so right, and they seem good. They feel good. And in many cases, we're able to justify them because it seems natural to us. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. That's just the way that we are. James says, no, that's not right. It's not okay for boys to be boys and girls to be girls because everyone is culpable for their actions. Similar to the seemingly inescapable self-destruction of a lifelong drug addict, James says that this deference to sin actually lays down a track for us where disobedience in our minds and our hearts leads to aberrant action. And it is not easily reversed because what do we do? We deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves into thinking that the problem is exterior to us. It's someone else. It's the president. It's the governor. It's the police. It's the neighbors. It's my teacher. It's my kids. It's my bus driver. It's my car. It's everybody else around me, but it's not me. And so we act in ways that feel justified to us. If you weren't such an idiot, I wouldn't be angry. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires, not the circumstances and the people that are around him. James is not denying the role of the devil as a tempter. And James is not saying that the unbelieving world doesn't have sometimes a disproportionate amount of influence over us in our lives. But he wants us to see that the devil is not to blame for the way that we are living. And the unbelieving world cannot receive the buck for all the things that we have done. He is, however, drawing our attention to the fact that our actual daily struggle is one where we are rarely able to discern the temptations that are arising distinctly from our flesh. And we are unable to discern where it comes from. So he paints this picture for us, this verbal picture of a downward spiral giving into temptation. It lures, it entices, it traps us, it surrounds us. It makes it seem so appealing. This must be the right thing to do because all of my affections and desires are now set on this thing. And when these desires are left unchecked, they become uncontrollable. And what is the consequence of uncontrollable desires? Notice second, unavoidable death. Look at verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So much of the Christian life in James, in the New Testament, across the Bible is about restraint. Not getting what you think that you want but do not need. Not doing what you feel like you should do but should not do. So much of the Bible is telling you, do not indulge your desire. Whether that is to oversleep and be lazy or overwork and, be an, and create an idle factory in what you produce. Whether that is indulging your desires and being gluttonous or satiating all of your sexual desires and many other things. So much of the Bible is about restraint, not doing, not getting, because desire 
left unchecked is uncontrollable and leads to an unavoidable death because when these indwelling evil desires are allowed to run rampant, verse 15, they give birth to sin. Just as conception leads naturally to childbirth, giving free reign to sinful inclinations results in moral transgression because nobody manages sin. Sin manages us. Brothers and sisters, I want to be very clear. If you're here and you're hiding sin, if you're here and you think that you've got it under control, that is the enticement and the luring of sin. You do not have it under control. You are not managing it, and it will destroy your life, even if the consequences are not visibly seen this side of eternity, and it will certainly send you to hell. Just as water running down a hill, so evil desire, if allowed to pursue its gravitational inclination, runs down into sinful activity because we do not manage sin. Sin manages us. We think we can manage it, and we try to hide it because we are ashamed of it, and we should be ashamed of it. We should be very ashamed of the sin in our life. We should be ashamed of it, so we cover it because we don't want people to know, and we do the very thing that actually works against us. Bringing it to the light is where we find freedom and help. The community is able to rally around us and help us to put sin to death. Once the process is set in motion, James tells us, there's an inevitability about it. From the very beginning, the end is seen and is is implicit. The end is in the beginning of the sinful action. Where does it go? It leads us to death, right down a straight path. It's not even unquestioned. But James warns that specific acts of sin are not the end of the progression. You see, we often, when we're counseling others or when we're looking at sin in our own life, we only look at the singular incident. And we think, if I could just get that out of there, everything would be fine. But James is a better counselor than we are. He knows that it's not the singular action that is the problem. What does he say? Rather, verse 15, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. The language here reminds us of Genesis and what God said to Adam, chapter 2, verse 17. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We shall die a spiritual death. And it is reminiscent of the very story that we read earlier in this service about Cain and Abel, chapter 4 of Genesis. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of ground. In the course of time, Cain brought forth to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of the fat portions. But the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain was doing the very thing that James is talking about. It's Abel's fault. God would be pleased with me if Abel wasn't here. So he eliminates Abel. These passages, along with James' writing, teach us that there 
are two paths in life. One that is easy, which leads to death. Sin is always easy. Sin is always easy. And one that is hard, which leads to eternal life. And few choose the correct one, as Jesus told his disciples. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It is always easy to walk contrary to God's revealed word. And it is often incredibly difficult to do what God has required of us in his word, even when we believe it to be right. To think that we can safely dally with sin, James offers this blunt reminder of where a life surrendered to sin ultimately leads to death. And friends, just as an aside, if you're wondering, if you're surrendering to sin, is there unconfessed sin in your life and sin that you are not bringing to the light of, to other members here so that you can receive help? Is there sin in your life that you refuse to tell anyone about or you refuse to give up because you think, not this too, you have surrendered to sin? Or as the Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin is death. Or as one preacher said, Think carefully before you allow sin to pilot your plane. James warns, you will crash into hell. Whereas trials lead to testing of your faith that produces steadfastness, 2 through 12, James says uncontrollable desire gives birth to sin that results in unavoidable death. The former leads to maturity that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that's the point of the trial. The trial comes so that you might see who you are and what you lack and what you need so that you might learn where to rely on God and lean toward him. And the other is fatal when sin is fully grown because sin leads us places that we would never go in our right mind. And it makes us do things that we would never do in our right mind. Death is the sundering of life. It is the result of sin, and it is our fault, James tells us. Did you notice how James made that clear by leaving out, once again, any reference to the devil or Satan? For James, there is no need to introduce Satan as an explanation, and there is no excuse arising from external circumstances. Were there no Satan, there would still be sin leading to death, because the enemy is not only within the camp and within the heart, the enemy is our heart itself. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The obvious answer to the prophet's question is no one. No one here is able to rightly discern the thoughts and intentions of their heart. No one here is able to rightly discern and perfectly ascertain the thoughts and intentions of someone else's heart. The heart is deceitful. It makes us think wrong things. It's desperately sick. It needs help. The difference for James, as the Puritans said, between the Christian and the non-Christian is not that the latter sins and the former does not, but the latter sides with his sin against God and the former sides with God against his sin. 
So all of the rhetoric in our lives that says, do what you love and follow your passions, according to James' terrible advice, because the uncontrollable inclination of your sinful heart leads you to an unavoidable death, which is why James warns us of deception. Notice third, deception, verse 16. Do not be deceived. Now, I want you to just pay attention to the rest of the chapter when you're reading this week, all of the references to deception. Stop thinking the wrong things. Stop thinking the wrong things is what James is saying. Don't think like that. Do not be deceived. My beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James warns us of what I was reminded of this week when I had the privilege to go to the Ocean City Bible Conference, that there is an inexplicable connection between our thinking and our actions. Sorry, not an inexplicable, an explicable connection, explained connection between our thinking and our actions. We, we are, verse 16, deceived. We are, verse 13, tempted to say, I am being tempted by God. A lack of gospel logic in our life leads us to deception. We start to think wrong things. It's God's fault. It's their fault. It's a member's fault. So throughout his letter, James is warning his brothers, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. You think that you're a Christian, you can't control your words, you're deceived. You think you're a Christian and you're not a doer of the word, you're deceived. You think you're a Christian and you're blaming God for your sin in your life, you're deceived. Do not be deceived especially as he delivers these hard-hitting rebukes. And then he reminds his readers and all of us that he is just like us. He doesn't sit over us. Notice what he says. My beloved brothers, while reminding them of the problem and caring for them, he sets himself alongside them. And having assured these early Christians that God does not cause temptation, James begins to clarify that God instead provides something else. In a very poetic style, he tells us what God gives. He doesn't give us temptation, but he gives, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift. They come down to us from above. Anything good Anything beautiful, everything excellent comes to us from the Father who is, verse 17, the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. All of the good things are a result of what God has done. The bad things are a result of the type of person that we are. God is infinitely wise and good. We are infinitely evil and sinful. We are responsible for what we do and God is responsible for what he does. And what does he do? He gives good gifts. James chooses this term father to magnify for us God's providential care. He's not just abstract. He is the father of lights. He is the creator. Just as he made the good things, the sun, the moon, the stars, he gives good gifts to his people. Yet unlike all of the things that he has created, which wax and wane like a shadow due to change, God himself is completely reliable. He is always benevolent in his disposition. James says that there is a way for us to live rightly by understanding that God is creator and that we are creature, that he is good and that we are not, that good things come down from, uh, from him to us. And he wants us to see that the reason that we can understand this to be true is the constancy of God's immutable character. We are fickle, James tells us. 
double-minded, unstable. We think the wrong things, so we do the wrong things, but God is constant. He is not fickle. He is not double-minded. We need to be people who are whole and people of integrity, who are complete, lacking in nothing. God is already complete, sufficient in and of himself. He needs nothing to make himself right or good. He gives everything that we could possibly need, but he might not give everything that you want. He gives everything that we need in our life. He holds nothing back, but he might not give all that you desire. He gives us everything that is good and perfect. Some of those things might be more difficult and trying that you never anticipated them to be. And in giving, he gives what is exactly appropriate at every moment of our lives. Friends, you see, one of the reasons that people are able to deceive themselves and say, God gave me a bad gift, so I'm now no longer going to stay in this marriage or live this way or whatever it might be, is because they do not understand who God is. God gives us exactly what we need to mold us into the very type of people that we would never be apart from his providences. God gives you exactly what you need. And that should be a comfort to you. Nothing has come to you in your life apart from the loving hand of the Father of lights. And nothing will come to you apart from his sovereign loving hand. That is not the same as saying that when people sin against you, that you don't need to stop them from sinning against you or remove yourself, and that there are no circumstances in which bad things happen and we don't need to act accordingly. But what we want to do is impute wrong to God. Not my fault, God's fault. Because when I can blame God or blame you or blame somebody else, I don't have to blame me. I don't have to look within. James is saying exactly what Jesus said. You look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't see the telephone pole sticking out of your head. He wants us to see how easy it is for us to blame somebody else without seeing that the problem in our life is us. But what is the greatest and most excellent gift that God could give? Notice fourth, new birth. In verse 18, of his own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. All right, I want you to just underline a few things. I'm going to reread the verse. Underline of his own will. Of his own will he brought us forth. Now I want you to circle by. By the word of truth. That's the means. Here's the purpose. I want you to put a square or a rectangle around that. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God does not send temptations to his servants. Instead, James tells us that God is a trustworthy giver of good gifts in our lives. And the preeminent gift is spiritual rebirth, brought about by God's life-giving word. The miracle of regeneration, where God gives us eyes to see the beauty of the gospel and ears to hear the wonder of the gospel and a heart that is finally willing to respond to the mercy of the gospel comes from his life-giving word. The regeneration of the believer is one that anticipates 
the renewal of all creation when God returns. He makes us new and he will make all things new. He changes us now and he will change all things then. He changes the type of person we are and he will change the type of world that we live in. The greatest and most perfect gift that the good and reliable gift giver gives is salvation to his people. And part of the reason that we will impugn wickedness to God is because we are looking at the wrong thing. We will say, I don't like this. It's God's fault. And James says, you've taken your eyes off of the wonderful gift that he has given to you of his own will. He has done this for you. Of his great mercy, he has done this for you. This salvation finds his origin in him and not in you. Nothing you've ever done has merited his favor. Nothing you will ever do if you are a believer can lose his favor. Of his own will, he brought you forth before the foundations of the world. Why did you become a Christian? Because of his own will. He has brought you forth to repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. And we see this is God's work, not your work of his own will. He has freely chosen us. And he brought us forth. How? By the word of truth. The language of bringing forth once again refers to birth. The uncontrollable desire give birth to sin, but the word of truth gives birth to a new creation. God spiritually births or regenerates Christians by the word of truth. And note again how James includes himself in the same needy class for all of the readers. Us, not you, us of his own will. He has brought us forth. Brothers and sisters, James wants us to see that we all, including himself, have something in common. We need this rebirth. The word of truth is the true word of God. So James is helping us see, how do we fight this temptation? We give our attention to this word because there is no way for us to fight that temptation unless we are immersed in this word. You cannot say you are taking your sin seriously if you are not fighting it with God's word. Here, referring to this narrowly defined gospel of truth, this declared word that calls us forth and preserves us in this life. And it is depicted for James as an instrument, an instrument that brings forth spiritual rebirth to dead sinners, that we will hear the word of truth. And as God's people, we will be able to, to hear it. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They understand my words that is revealed in my word. Regenerate believers are then described as verse 18, those that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. By explicitly adding a kind to modify first fruits, James highlights the metaphorical nature of this language. First fruits, once again, alludes to these Old Testament laws in Exodus 23, 19, and Leviticus 2, verse 12, and Numbers chapter 18, verse 12 of giving something in this harvest of first fruits to God. We give our best to him because he has given to us. We see that in our service each and every week. We give back a portion of what God has given to us because we don't deserve anything. You don't deserve eternal life. You don't deserve money. You don't deserve food. You don't deserve anything. So we give freely in response to what God has given to us. And in choosing this language, James reminds his audience that the good shepherd has many more sheep to gather into his fold. 
He's going to bring them about through this word. He's going to transform them through this word. And they're going to see this gospel driven home in their lives. And all of this is this positive teaching. Driven, uh, all of this positive teaching is driven home at the beginning of verse 19, which I think once again flows up into the section we're studying and down, but unfortunately, the subject heading in our Bible prohibits us from seeing it. Notice what he does in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Then look at the beginning of verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Don't think this way, but think this way. Don't be deceived, but know. Know that God is for you and that he is never against you. Friends, if we do not know that, then we do not understand the gospel, the gospel that is actually undergirding all of James' moral instruction. One of the things that came crashing upon me this week is that the gospel is very present in the letter of James. It's not assumed, it's present, but James is showing us the outworking of the gospel. If you're a believer, we need to be reminded of the gospel. If you're an unbeliever, we're here to tell you the gospel. The gospel is the good news the good news of what God has done for us. God has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. God has saved us from our sins. He sent his son to deal with our sin because we could not deal with it. And his son dealt with it on the cross when he died in our place. And then he rose from the dead for our justification that we might be declared righteous in God's sight. And then he went and ascended into heaven and has now sent us his spirit that we might have the indwelling uh, spirit to put sin to death in our life. And now he is praying for us while we wait for his return that that spirit would help us put sin to death in our lives. That is what God has done for us. It is the good news. It is the great news that God has reconciled us to himself by a redeemer. And it is the good news that stays good if anyone does sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it is the good news for the unbeliever here today. It is good news that God has made a way to deal with your sin. He will forgive you of all of your sin through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that gospel comes with implications. That gospel is not fire insurance, as people crassly say. That gospel is not a get out of hell free card, as people crassly say. That gospel becomes the bedrock foundation for all of the way that we live our life, as James says. In fact, as one of the preachers this past week said, the gospel is like a flywheel, that once it's moving in our life, as you attach other things to it, carries with it an incredible load, as it has all types of implications for us in our lives. The gospel is a flywheel that is moving But if it's not moving in our lives, it can't bring about all of these implications. So James is getting that flywheel going in our lives so that we might think the right things and then do the right things. And notice once again that connection for James from verse 16 to verse 19. Bad thinking, don't be deceived. Good thinking, know this, my beloved brothers. Why? Because if you do not have right thinking, you will never, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. You will never do that if you do not think rightly. You will instead say, verse 13, I am being tempted by God, and it's His fault. 
if you do not think rightly, you will never look at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and let it set you free so that you might restrain your speech or what you type or what you think when you look out on other people and see their foolishness and feel this incredible urge to respond and fix them. You will never, if you do not have right thinking, then restrain your words so that chapter three, from the same mouth, blessings and cursings don't come forth. If you do not think rightly about the gospel, you will never live with your brothers and sisters in this community in a way that is loving and forgiving. Last night, dealing with an issue in my own life, wrestling with this, wanted to work on the sermon, instead picked up this book that everybody needs to read, reminding myself of something I did not intend to. It just happened to be the very next section I was reading, section 13, stimulated to love others. When my mind is fixed on the gospel, I have ample stimulation to show God's love to other people. For I am always willing to show love to others when I am freshly mindful of the love that God has shown me. Also, the gospel gives me the wherewithal to give forgiving grace to those who have wronged me. For it reminds me daily of the forgiving grace that God is showing me. Not the forgiving grace that God has shown me. The forgiving grace that God is showing me. Doing good and showing love to those who have wronged me is always the opposite. I mean, the book was reading my email. Is always the opposite of what my sinful flesh wants me to do. Nonetheless, when I remind myself of my sins against God and of his forgiving grace and his generous grace toward me, I give the gospel an opportunity to reshape my perspective and to put me in a frame of mind where I actually desire to give the same grace to those who have wronged me. The gospel is the flywheel pulling all of the implications of the letter of James forward so that you can apply them. If you don't believe the gospel, you will read the letter of James as moralism. Don't do this, do this. Don't say that, say this. Don't raise your hands like that. Say, if the Lord wheels, and there is no gospel. But when the gospel is the foundation it then reverberates in your life and manifests itself in your life in all of these unbelievable and wonderful ways. And your life and mine, again, as the book helpfully says, the gospel isn't one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all of the classes take place in. The gospel motivates everything that James says here. The gospel is what helps us see rightly when we are deceived and want to blame God and blame others and blame our church and blame our friends and our family and our president or anybody else in our lives that we don't like or think are the problems. The gospel is what helps us to not desire 
wrongly these things that trap us. The gospel is what helps us see the good gifts that come, all of the things that I don't deserve, a new day, life, the privilege to gather with the people of God, the opportunity to be able to hear or to be able to read the Bible in my own language, the freedom to be able to gather with people and publicly praise God that Jesus paid it all. The gospel is what motivates us to fulfill all of our covenant obligations when we don't feel like doing it. The gospel is the foundation and it carries us forward because James knows that we are a people who are prone to deception, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So James wants us to see that it is the gospel that helps us. Believer, is the gospel helping you today? Or have you just fallen into a type of Christianity that is no Christianity at all? Or you're just trying to do the right things because you're to do the right things? The gospel is here for you. Repent. Stop trying and give yourself over afresh to the gospel. An unbeliever present today, have you trusted in this glorious gospel? We invite you to trust this gospel. This gospel is the good news. This gospel will sustain your life. This gospel will save you from hell. This gospel will reconcile you to God. This gospel will reconcile you with other people. This gospel will set you free to actually live life for the first time to the full. This gospel is good news for us because God does not send temptations, but is generous and gives what he demands by means of the life-giving word, which is the gospel. So, a few quick applications. First, treasure the gospel and work again afresh at treasuring the gospel. Do everything that you have to do, as I was reminded this week, to treasure the gospel. Fight for it in your life. Sing hymns about it. Read your Bible. Write the confession of faith. Study confessions of faith. Confess your sin to one another. Pray the gospel. Rehearse the gospel. Share the gospel. Sing the gospel. Meditate upon the gospel. Wake up in the morning and remind yourself of your need for the gospel. Go to bed at the end of the night and thank God that the gospel kept you in the faith of Jesus Christ all the way to the end of the day and ask him to preserve you when you are most vulnerable by means of his precious gospel as you anticipate the day when his gospel will become a reality and he returns to save you. Treasure the gospel at all costs, believers. Believers of Christ church, one of the great things that I was worried about this week is that we would be a church that would be so intellectually stimulated that we would lack the gospel. We have a good confession of faith, no doubt about it. But is the gospel motivating us? Treasure the gospel. Second, know that God does not tempt anyone to sin, but he does test the faith of those who love him, that they might not be deceived but they might know the new birth. Know that God does not tempt anyone to sin, but he does test the faith of those who love him, that they might not be deceived, but know new birth. God is testing us so that we might see that we are to love him still. As the elderly bereaved man once said, It must be that the Lord still has me something to do here in the wake of my wife's passing. Else why would he have left me? 
And someone rightly replied and said, He has not left you to do anything except to love him still. Love him still. God is testing our affections for him. Love him still. Third, so much of the Christian life is about restraint. Not getting what you think you want or what you think you need, but do not need. And actually, if we're honest, do not really want. It is about restraint, but here's the way that you fight it, the gospel. One of the reasons that we have such problem in our life of putting sin to death and putting on new life patterns and putting off old life patterns is that we're not doing it by means of the gospel and reflecting how it is the gospel that motivates all of the behavior in our life. It is the flywheel that is carrying everything forward. And then fourth and finally, we live by what we love. The shape of our lives is determined by the joys of our heart. We live by what we love. And the shape of our lives is determined by the joys of our heart. Do you love the gospel? And is the gospel the joy of your heart? Is it what is coming out naturally? Do you want to know what you often really think? Be put in a situation that you feel is far too difficult for you. And you bang your finger with a hammer. Or when you find yourself in front of an incredulous and difficult boss or fighting children to get into the car, or whatever it might be in your life. In those moments, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we find out what is really in there. May the joy of our heart be the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. And God, we ask that you would help us to apply the gospel. Father, we pray that you would help us ruin sinners as we are to come, to come weary and heavy laden as we sang earlier in this service, that the gospel would motivate us. Father, we thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. And Father, we pray that you would help us to sing of the grace that is ours in Christ. You have shown grace when we deserved wrath. You have shown mercy when we deserved judgment. You have been patient when we have refused and rejected all of your overtures of kindness. Father, we thank you that you have not treated us as our sins deserve, whether we are a believer or an unbeliever. You have brought us once again to hear your word, and that in and of itself is another manifestation of your great grace to us. So we pray that we would sing with a reckless abandonment now, the beauty of the gospel. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.